be great. My name's Gav. I work for a little organisation called Youth for Christ. Um, all we want to do is see every young person in Great Britain meet Jesus. That's what we exist for. And if you want to know more, there's an area in the tool shed. But I've been asked today to talk about um, a subject that I really care about, which is the idea of Jesus and his youth group. Now, lots of people don't quite understand what that means because there's often misunderstandings in life. And one of the misunderstandings in life is what the disciples were like. Because I don't know what you imagine. In fact, let's be honest. What do you imagine the disciples were like? What did they look like? What were they like? What kind of people were they? Fishermen, anything else? Beards, yeah. Lots of teenagers can't grow beards. In my case, lots of adults can't grow beards. Um, anything else? Shabby, okay. Shabby chic, maybe. Who knows? But, you know, misunderstandings go on. And misunderstandings in life inform certain things. For example, I joined Youth for Christ when I was 21 years old. And I'm now 33, and I have forgotten at times that I have changed in that period, and therefore what young people see when I speak changes too. I realized this when we launched a, a, an organization called Newham Youth for Christ, and we launched this, and I used the word sick, right, that the young people use. And I used that in context to mean good. And afterwards, this little 14-year-old comes up to me, and he kisses his teeth, he goes, what, go on, blood, you is too old to use the word sick. And I realized in that moment that I saw something in the mirror that he didn't see. And that it was time for me to reimagine myself as a slightly older person. So if you want to put it in a different context, I no longer shop in River Island because I'm too old. I now shop in Next. But it's at least 10 years till I have to bother going to M&S. You know, but misunderstandings play a part, don't they? Equally, um, I've got two little kids. Uh, they're brilliant. I've got Amelie. She's six and a half. She's about this big. Um, she's a beautiful little princess. She's wonderful. The only problem is the Lord called us to Dudley to work for Youth for Christ. So she talks like this. All right, mate. But apart from that, she's great. We've then got a son, Daniel. He's about this big. He's three and a half. Daniel should never have been born. He, he should never have made it into the world. He was given a 5% chance of survival. Um, and after like nine blood transfusions in the womb, he was born 10 weeks early. But if you saw him now, he doesn't look like a premature baby. He looks like he's eaten a premature baby because he's massive. And um, it wasn't so long ago, Amelie was sat in our back garden and she starts talking to my wife, Anne. And Amelie that day had seen a, a Muslim woman dressed in the full um, covering in the hijab. And she said to... Um, my wife, Anne, Mummy, why was that woman covered up? And uh, my wife, Anne, says to uh, Amelie, well, she was covered up because she's a Muslim. So Amelie says to my wife, well, wh what's a Muslim like? And she said, well, they live their life by a load of rules, and they're really um, kind of self-righteous people that, that live really strict religious lives. First thing Amelie says to, to my wife is, Mummy, is Daddy a Muslim? And you, know, you realise in that moment, that's not good news. And there's misunderstandings going on. People, people misunderstand what's going on. And one of the things that the disciples is this. We think that they were competent. We think that they were really amazing. We think we could never be like them. We think they were quite old. And we think that that's how it fits. And the reality is, when Jesus wanted to change the world, he started a youth group. I think it's really encouraging. According to a fellow called John Stott, who, who sadly died last year, but a good theologian fella, the disciples were aged 15 to 22. That's really comforting, isn't it? When Jesus wanted to change the world, a man in his 30s, when Jesus wanted to change the world, he didn't start an elder board full of old people that had been there and had all the wisdom in the world. He started a youth group. Isn't that encouraging? And I think that should really then encourage us in what we do. And, and a lot of what we're going to talk today is based on a, a little book I wrote, which is on the next slide, called Lazy, Antisocial and Selfish? Because I was sick of young people being told that they were worth nothing. 
by society. This is 12 stories of youth groups that have transformed their communities that are better, each with a, a parallel from the story of Jesus about him and his youth group, because it's amazing. Jesus taught them so much and empowered them so much. So again, there's a quote on the next slide I want us to look at. And the question I want you to talk about with someone next to you next is who said this? I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent on the frivolous youth of today. For certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was young, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders, but the present youth are exceedingly wise, disrespectful, and impatient of restraint. I am. Yeah. David Cameron, who well, he may have done, but no. Anyone else? Gandhi, no, but good guess, yeah. Greek philosopher, we're getting closer, yeah. Archimedes, we're getting very close. You know, in the 8th century BC, this fella, whose head's going to come on the screen, an ancient Greek poet, Hesiod, said that in the 8th century BC. Do you know the reason I say that at the start? There has never been a day... When you know people say, when I was young, young people used to be quiet and they used to listen and they were good. That day's never existed because some old people were telling me that the other day and they were really old. But I looked them in the face and said, you're not even old enough to have been around in the 8th century. You know, there's never been a time when everything was perfect. So we have to sometimes say to people, you know what, we are young and we are on a journey and it is challenging. But, but this is how we are. This is who we were made to be. We were made to push things. You know, 87% of revolutions throughout the whole of human history have been done by young people. Why? Because you're prepared to take on the world, aren't you? There's a great film. Has anyone seen the film Amazing Grace? Anyone seen that? It's a brilliant film about the abolition of the slave trade. If you've not seen it, see it. And there's a great moment in that. William Wilberforce was the, was the guy who really drove forward the abolition of the slave trade. Why? Because it's wrong for people to be sold for money, right? Do you know at the time he did it, many Christians were getting rich off selling people for money? He had to stand up even to the church and say this is wrong. And his best friend was a guy called William Pitt, who became the youngest ever Prime Minister of Britain. He became Prime Minister in his mid-twenties. And when William Pitt decides to be Prime Minister, he goes to talk to his mate William Wilberforce, and he says to him, I want to be Prime Minister. And William Wilberforce looks at William Pitt and basically says, you can't, you're too young, don't be a Muppet. And William Pitt says, I'm young enough to not yet realise I can't change the world. There's something dangerous about young people where you could change the world. And yet society looks down on you, don't they, sometimes? And we have to fight against this a bit. There's a quote on the next sheet, the next page. It says, um, it's a curious view of the world that sees in groups of young people not a fund of pleasure and hope for the future, but a source of alarm and distress to local communities. It, it's not fair that people often see us like that. And yet, life's about perspective. You know, as many people in the world will say, well, we've got a problem. Others say, well, what could we become? What could we do together? The uh, next slide's got a little picture on it. Now, just tell me the first thing you see. Who sees a young lady? Put your hand up. Who sees an old lady? Put your hand up. Half and half. That's what's interesting, isn't it? You're looking at exactly the same thing. Half of you see an old lady. You can all see the old lady now. Half of you see a young lady. Can you all see the young lady now? So much of life's about perspective and how you look at it. And I think we need to look at life as, as so positive and we're young enough to change the world. Wouldn't that be amazing? You know, we're young enough to, to be people that could really drive something forward that would be incredible and life-changing. Which leads us on to the Jesus way, because what Jesus sees is so much potential and such incredible opportunity for a new generation to do things. And then thinking through your, your understanding of Jesus and how he worked with the disciples, what kind of things do you think he, he taught and, and did with his youth group? What kind of examples come to mind straight away? What, what can you think of? Well, Jesus did that with his disciples and he did that for this reason. Anything in particular come to mind? 
He encouraged them. He definitely did. Yeah. He directed them. Yeah, he did. Corrected them and directed them both. He corrected them and he directed them. The interesting thing about Jesus is Jesus did things with people. Anything else? He saw in them what they couldn't see in themselves. It's always really helpful to other people point out to you that which you might be able to do. Yeah. He let them make their own mistakes. And you know, sometimes you have to do that. It's a basic rule of parenting as well as youth work. Sometimes people have to do something wrong to know how to do it right again. Anything else? Gave them food. Yes. Yes. Provided for their needs. You wouldn't ever think that you'd go without dinner if you had Jesus with you. You could just, you know, turn the dust into cordon bleu dinner. Yeah. Lots of loving and lots of challenging. Do you know what's most interesting? If I just told you one thing and we could stop now and some of you are thinking that would be brilliant. You know, Jesus doesn't call us to join him in the comfort. But he calls us to join him in the danger and he'll be with us. Now just to clarify on this, a lot of Western Christian teaching is about the fact that you come to Jesus and everything's solved like some kind of self-help tool and everything's wonderful. That's not what happens. You come to Jesus and life can be unbelievably difficult. It can be really hard. It can be really challenging. Um, things can go wrong. Life can be a struggle. You, you wonder how this is going to turn out. But, but what Jesus does is he calls you to join him in the challenge, not for him to leave you alone. And you want that illustrated? When Jesus walks on water, he doesn't join Peter in the safety of the boat. He calls Peter to join him in walking on the water. You know, the most common promise in the Bible is not that everything will be brilliant. It's when God says more often than not in the Bible, more than anything else, I am with you. So just to look at a few of the things that Jesus passed on. The first one, I think, that's really, really encouraging is that Jesus uses all types of people. It's really encouraging. How many of you have grown up with uh, Christian leaders? Your parents are pastors or something. Yeah, there's a few. If you were God, would you use your parents? Probably say no. But God's got a funny sense of humour, hasn't he? God uses all types of people. He's got this strange sense of humour where he wants to use people. He, he's so inclusive of all. And you know what's interesting? Is, is we think that God wants to use people that are really gifted and really talented and really incredible. But that's not the case. He, he wants to use people that are prepared to, to live for him and be used by him. He wants to use you. You might say, well, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. I could never talk. i tell you what, God makes an ass talk in the Old Testament so he could help you to talk. It's really encouraging. My wife reminds me of that often when I've done something well. She says, he doesn't need you. He made an ass talk. I think that's so affirming. Thank you, Anne. But you know what? God uses all people. And we need to get beyond this nonsense that, that God uses superheroes. God doesn't use superheroes. He makes them. You know, he takes the ordinary and he makes it extraordinary. You know, like water into wine, right? That's one of my favourite stories in the Bible, I have to be honest. Because I think it shows that the Lord is in touch with wedding receptions as well as religious gatherings. And he takes the most bland, boring drink you could know, water, and turns it into the best wine the world's ever known. He takes something that looks average and makes it incredible. He wants to use us and, and grow us. And, and many of us believe, God can use me, what have I got? I'm no Mike Pilavacci, I'm not this person, I've got nothing. Do you know what? God, God has a sense of humour in who he uses. If you look in the Bible, it's almost like you have to really blow it before God can use you. You know, you look like um, people in the Old Testament planting a vineyard, getting drunk on their own wine, and then God's still using them. It's interesting. Or, or you look at um, the Samaritan woman, divorced more than once, and yet God uses her to be the first person to share his good news. You look at Lazarus, who's dead, and yet God uses him. You know, God has a sense of humour. And I think we need to get beyond this expectation that God only uses people that are gifted. God made you and he gave you loads of gifts. 
I wasn't going to go off on this kind of tangent, but I think some of you need to know this morning, this afternoon, that the Lord thinks you're brilliant, that the Lord wants to use you. You know, I mentioned before about my little daughter, and she got a bit obsessed with Bruno Mars a little while ago, you know, the pop star. And um, it's interesting because the music I now like is the music that my children like. So we obviously like One Direction the most in our house. But she got into Bruno Mars and she rang my mum. My mum lives in America. My mum's the least cool person in the world. She's got no idea who Bruno Mars is. And Amelie speaks to my mum on the phone and she says, Grandma, do you know what happens when you smile? My mum's like, no, no, what happens, Amelie? What happens? And, and Amelie says, Grandma, the, the whole world stops and stares for a while. And she says, Grandma, do you know why? And my mum's like, no, why, Amelie? Why, why? Amelie says, because Grandma... You're amazing, just the way you are. At that moment, Amelie looks all ambiguous, she, she, ambivalent. She gives me the phone, she goes off, and, and I pick up the phone, and my mum's like, you never guess what Amelie just said to me. When I smile, the whole world's because I'm amazing. I said, don't worry about it, mum. She says it to everyone. But, do you know what? I think the Lord says to each one of us today, do you know what? You're amazing. Maybe not just the way you are. We can work on that. You know, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. We're all works in progress, right? But God looks at you and says, do you know what? You're amazing. Stop comparing yourselves. Too many of us look sideways and say, I want to be like that person when I grow up. Or I want to be able to do this. Or, or if I could just play the guitar like them. Or if I could just have a prophetic word like this. Or if I could just be funny like that. But actually, God just says, you are brilliant. And if you don't think you are, then just go with my sense of humor and let me use you. There used to be a t-shirt people used to always wear at Soul Survivor. I doubt if they ever even sell it anymore. And it said, it? when God made me, he was showing off. And do you know what? In one sense, he was. You're the height of his creation. You're brilliant. You're wonderful. And the lies people have said to you aren't true. God wants to use you. So he uses all people. And I think that's really encouraging. All types of people. Secondly, there's no outsiders. What I love about Jesus is he calls such an incredibly diverse bunch of people that it's not like they could ever be called the cool gang. I think one of the things that's really liberating about Christianity is you don't really have to worry about who's cool and who's not because we've all got the fingerprints of God on us. We're all made in the image of God and he loves us all enough to die for us so we should love all the other people around us. And I love the story of Zacchaeus where uh, it makes no sense. There's basically there's a midget in a tree, right? And Jesus is walking along and this midget in a tree is a nasty midget. He's not even a nice one. He's a naughty dwarf. And Jesus walks along and Jesus could ask anyone back to his house for dinner. In fact, Jesus doesn't do that. You know what it is with Jesus? Jesus has a real good skill. He has a good skill of getting free meals for himself. He never asked anyone to his house because he ain't got one. So he constantly invites himself to everyone else's house for dinner. It's a great trick. And Jesus invites himself to have dinner with Zacchaeus, which offends everyone else because Zacchaeus is the lowest of the low. And he does that. Why? Because Jesus cares about all people. And I wonder if in our own lives, we need to have a little think before we go home. Who are the people that we make outsiders? Who are the people that, that actually we feel good about ourselves because at least we're not them? Because if you want to be serious about following a pattern the Lord gave us for leadership, then we can't have outsiders. Thirdly, when Jesus hangs out with his youth group, he really teaches them about the need to tell others. You can call it evangelism, you can call it what you like, but it teaches them about the need to reach out to others. There's that moment where Jesus in John chapter 4 goes to the, the well in Samaria. And it says in the Bible Jesus had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria. There was a much quicker way he could have gone, but it was dangerous. 
and he went the longer way in order to meet this woman at the well. And he meets this woman at the well. And have you ever noticed, what does Jesus ask? When Jesus meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4, what does he ask her for? Huh? Water, a drink. Yeah, he asks her for a drink. He's, Jesus is tired. He's been journeying a long time. He, he is worn out and he wants a drink. And he asks her for a drink. And then what happens is, over a conversation that would have probably taken about 45 minutes in the heat of the day, she's gone in the heat of the day because she's disgraced and no one likes her. She's gone in the heat of the day so she doesn't meet anyone. And then Jesus turns up and says, hi. And in that moment, he leads her to himself. And have you ever noticed as well, Jesus doesn't get his drink. You know, I, I think it's incredible that he doesn't kick off. If I was tired and thirsty and I'd gone and asked for a drink, it's no big deal, is it? Can you, can you please give me a cup of water? You're getting loads of it out of a well. Can you just give me some? I am cream crackered. You know, that's all he's saying. But he doesn't get his drink. But he does lead her to himself. And he shows his, his disciples that, that were with him just before this encounter and with him again afterwards, he shows them the importance of sharing this news with others. Because then this woman, she goes back to her village, right? And just to clarify... The testimony of a woman would not be trusted in court back in those days. Such a helpful noise at the background. The testimony of a woman would not have been trusted in court back in those days. So the idea of a woman telling men anything wouldn't have been accepted. And yet she goes back to her village and tells them about Jesus. And the whole village come running back over the field, not along the path that makes sense, but running over the field to get back to Jesus. And when they get, get back to Jesus, they all, they all come to him, they all give their lives to him. And you realize in this moment that this Christianity is good news for sharing with others. It's not good news for keeping to ourselves, is it? And how many of us, when we go home, are going to bother telling other people about Jesus? How many of us are going to do that? Because you know what? You want to you live the Jesus way. Jesus showed his own youth group how important it was to reach others. And uh, I was at an event called New Wine a couple of years ago. And there were four lads, um, I was running the youth work there, and there were four lads who had gone that week and hadn't gone to any of the youth works they didn't want to. And one of their mums was connected to the church, and it got to the point in a week where they'd run out of money, and they wanted fish and chips. So they went towards the fish and chip van, just longing for some fish and chips, and they saw the vicar that was one of their mum's vicars that had bought them to new wine. And they saw him and they thought, well, he says that he should care about the poor, so surely he should help us. We've got no money and we want fish and chips. So they went up to this vicar and they said to him, we want some fish and chips, we've got no money. Now the vicar was really clever. The vicar said to them, I will buy you fish and chips on the condition that you go to tonight's meeting. Now you think to yourself, what's this all about? But they say, okay, because you know, young lads, let's face it boys, you're thinking of your stomachs at times. They're hungry. They're not thinking about a meeting, they're just thinking fish and chips, happy days. So the vicar buys them fish and chips. They eat these really quickly. Then he says, now tonight you've got to go to the meeting. And they're like, oh, what do we agree to that for? And that evening, I'm, I'm stood by this tent and this vicar turns up with these four lads. And he says to me, these four lads have all got to sit near the front and they've got to stay in for the whole meeting. I said, how am I going to make that happen? He said, and if possible, can you help them to enjoy themselves? I said, what, what, what is this? So I agreed with this vicar. He had to deal with them, not me. He would stand just outside the door at the front of the tent like a bouncer. So these lads had to stay and he would watch them. So all evening he stared as these four young lads were there. And that night I got up to preach um, the gospel and I got up to preach it and um, I get up and uh, my first question to the crowd, which was not supposed to be answered, was what do you want from Jesus? And one of these lads shouts out, effing nothing. And so I said, in my nice pastoral way, 
would you like to come to the front and share that with everyone in the microphone? He says, no way. So I said, well, would you do me a favor and be quiet? So he was. And he got to the end of my talk and I asked if anyone wanted to surrender their lives to Jesus. And all four of those lads stood up. And I thought to myself, no, no, this is wrong. You need to sit down. You're the wrong ones. You, you've just come in here because you get your free fish and chips. So sit down. But no, they surrendered their lives to Jesus. Then they dragged me out to see the vicar. And they said to the vicar with no warning to me or the vicar, we need Gav to come to our church so all our friends can come and hear about Jesus. And the vicar says to me, well, it looks like we ain't got any choice, does it, Gav? So I rock up at their church about eight months later. And it's really awkward because in the church, the back two rows are all lads, all about 14, all clearly don't normally go to church and all not wanting to be there. And these four young lads have said to me, Gav, this is your one shot. Get them all. And I'm thinking, this is a disaster. And you know what? I preached absolutely dreadfully. And no one really made a decision to follow Jesus. But 15 of the 20-odd lads who'd come decided that they'd heard enough to make them go to a youth alpha. And they went to a youth alpha run by their four friends. And 12 of them came to faith. But you know what's incredible about that? Is when God gets hold of a life, that life then gets hold of others. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus and you want to lead the Jesus way and you want to be anything like Jesus himself, you tell others this good news. You know, sometimes when um, we think God can't use us, that's deeply upsetting to God. It's funny, when, um, when your children say things that you don't agree with, it's upsetting. My little girl came back from school the other week and she said, Daddy, Daddy, I've decided that I'm ugly. I said, you're six. I said, then you're beautiful. She said, yeah, but I've got this spot on my cheek. And so all the girls have been telling me at school that I'm ugly because I've got a spot. And you know, it's heartbreaking. You're thinking, you're six, stop it. And I wonder sometimes when we say, Lord, how could you use us, God? It, it, it can actually upset him because he's so massive and he created you and he thinks you're brilliant and therefore he wants to use you. Let's move on. What about the one um, about no outsiders? Did anyone talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, just to paraphrase, the idea that there are certain people that are so far away, how could God get them? You know, if you ever need encouragement on that, I, I heard a uh, talk by a professor recently who said, um, do you know Richard Dawkins, the great atheist guy? Great atheist guy. The, the famous atheist guy. Um, and uh, this speaker was saying, most Christians in this country don't believe that Richard Dawkins could come to Jesus. But then who believed that of Saul, who became Paul, who did incredible things? And I think sometimes we, we limit our, our, our faith, don't we? And we go for easy hits. That's why um, I was interviewed the other day on the Christian radio and they said, where are all the Christian leaders your age? And I said, well, they left the church when they were 15 because church didn't know how to handle nonconformists. And then what happened was they didn't come back. And often in, in our church work, we, we work with those that are easiest to keep. But sometimes actually the most difficult person might just be the best church leader in 10 years' time. Anyone else look at the no outsiders one? Yeah. 
Yeah, and we make value judgments on people, don't we? we, we let, let's face it. We all sin when we decide how important someone is based on certain things. So, for example, um, in my job leading Youth for Christ, I get to meet some very wealthy people. I also get to meet some famous people. And it's easy to think they're more important than other people. But the reason we do Youth for Christ is to reach the most marginalised, at-risk young person there could be. So surely it's an absolute nonsense to them just because you're meeting some celebrity think they're more important. But we all have these things, don't we, where we decide who, who or what's important. And one of the biggest challenges in my own life, I say to the Lord, Lord, help me behave the same all the time. Because even, you know, you put on your Sunday best to go and see someone of significance. Now, what's that even mean? Someone of significance is anyone with a heartbeat, isn't it? And we need to move to that a little. Anyone else on the outside as one? I think it's important that we... Oh, sorry, yeah. It's hard to include people. Christians, as anyone, are good at being cliquey. So we have our club, we have our gang. We don't want more people joining the gang. Well, actually, we have to work at that, don't we? We have to work at it. We have to remember that, that all people are children of God. You know, there's a, there's a guy by my daughter's school who's got all kinds of mental illnesses going on, and he's very loud and he's very vocal, and he says all kinds of things you shouldn't say by a primary school. But you know what? He's ill. And I remind myself, Lord, remind me that he is your child. And I try so hard to reach out to him, even though, frankly, I, I wish he wasn't there almost, if I'm honest. And we have this battle that goes on that says, Lord, help me see people with your eyes, not the world's eyes. Because the problem as well is that society impacts on us and makes us see things differently. So I'll give you an example. My, my parents run a church in Newtown. Newtown is where that massacre happened before Christmas. Do you remember that? Where the... Um, the guy went into a primary school and killed loads of kids. My dad did five of the funerals for those little kids who were all five and six. And it's an absolute tragedy. You know, his church is full of good Christians that, that love Jesus like you and me. But they live in a society where they're told that they have a right to own arms. And so it seems obvious to me as a British Christian, how do you make sure something like that doesn't happen again or is less likely to happen? Well, how do you? How do you make sure that someone doesn't go into a primary school with a gun or the chances are less likely again? How, what do you do? What would you change? You take the guns away. You change the gun laws, right? It's, it's obvious. It's what you do. But when you speak to people who, who love the Lord deeply but have lived in that culture all their lives, that's not an option. And so we have to ask ourselves, because it's easy to see the problems in someone else's culture, not in your own. We have to ask ourselves, what is there in my society, in my town, that the world has told me is okay but isn't okay with Jesus? And you know what I think the number one thing is? It's the idea that there's a hierarchy of people. The idea that some people are more important than others is just not true. All people are the same. Whether you are David Beckham or a tramp, you are worth the same to God. And we have got to treat people the same and get rid of outsiders. Jesus models that time and time and time and time again. If anything, if anyone were at the top of Jesus' tree, then it would be the poor, not the rich. And we've got to get serious about the fact all people matter. And it's hard, isn't it? How many of us, we all have prejudices, don't we? Do we not all have prejudices? I know Martin a little bit, he doesn't like Liverpool fans because he supports a blue team from Liverpool. But we all have, and, and do you know what, actually, football can be really bad for prejudices. It can be really bad. I support AFC Wimbledon, which means that I have to struggle 
There you go. I have to struggle with loving Milton Keynes, but you know, it's coming. But we have to be serious about these things because if you have prejudice, get away. You know what? I had, a, I had a really serious prejudice when I was 20 that I had to deal with, and it's not a serious issue, but it was a prejudice. My prejudice was against surfers. And you say, why on earth would you have a prejudice against surfers? Well, I grew up in South London, in inner London, right? A place called Peckham. And I grew up there, and you couldn't have been further away from the sea. And surfers were these strange people that put peroxide in their hair, wore funny clothes, and walked around as if they were on the beach when they came to Peckham. Made no sense. And so I genuinely had a slight issue with surfers <laughs> until I met some and became friends with them. Then what happened was I realized they were just the same as me. They just had different fashion choices. You know what? How do you change your view on someone that you have a prejudice against? You get to know them. And you realize you have more in common than you do different. There's no, there can be no outsiders. I think we need to make a slight distinction, and this is a seminar on its own, that some are called to be evangelists, right? You're kind of upfront, in your face, scary person that you don't really want to be friends with, but you quite want on your team. And many people, all people that love Jesus, are called to evangelism, and there's a distinction there, whereby we're all called to reach others and tell others, but some have a special gift given upon them to do that rah-rah bit, if you like. Now, the reality is, no one gets won through the rah-rah bit unless five or six other people have actually bothered bringing Jesus into the lives of those people beforehand. So it needs all, doesn't it? Do you know, I would say two things in this. I'd say one, it is scary. Talking to people about Jesus is scary. I always struggle when I meet new people and they ask me what I do for a living because I run a Christian charity called Youth for Christ. So I can't even pretend I work with young people. I have to tell them what I, you know, sometimes I'm at a Christmas party and I wish I was a vet because it'd be so much easier. They just talk about, but, but you can't hide. What I do is I lead Youth for Christ. And um, not so long ago, I got pulled over by a policeman. I wasn't doing anything wrong. It was a random pullover. And he looks at my driving license, and it says reverend on it. And so you're thinking, in that moment, you can't hide again. So I've just got this position where I've just said, okay, I'm going to just bring it up and try and make it more natural. I think the second thing is, we think, Christians talk about the real world, and then they talk about the stuff we do with God. And they talk about them as if they're separate. Human beings, this is deep theological fact human beings were made to worship God that's what we were made to do the most normal thing a human being can do is praise God you are abnormal if you don't praise God because human beings were praised were made to praise God Jesus is the author of life Jesus is the life giver so unless you know the author of life you go around existing not living so the most normal conventional thing a human being can do is praise God now if you accept that then your whole worldview changes. Because we talk of ourselves as if we're abnormal, but we're doing what we were made to do, which is worship the God who made us. And we therefore need to have a bit more confidence as we share. I think also we, we forget God's there. We talk about God as if uh, he's not in the room. We, we welcome him into occasions, and God's everywhere all the time. And I think sometimes instead of thinking, I need to go out and do some evangelism today, we could go out and think, Lord, you're on the move all the time. Where are you moving, and how can I join in with what you're doing? Fourthly, values. Values. You know, there's an incredible story in the Bible found in John 13 where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Just to clarify on foot washing, foot washing was the worst job you could do. There were two types of slave in that day. There were Jewish slaves and there were Gentile slaves. Washing other people's feet was considered below a Jewish slave. The lowest rank of person was a Gentile slave. They were the only people allowed to wash feet because it was so demeaning. And you can understand that, can't you? 
I mean, feet are horrible, aren't they? You know, having played football every week for 25 years, my feet are so horrible, even I don't like washing them. You know, feet are they're just horrible. And in those days as well, you didn't wear proper shoes. You walked around close to the ground. There weren't proper roads. Everywhere was dusty and, and stony. Your feet would have been horrible, covered in all kinds of things. But the problem is, you couldn't eat dinner until you'd had your feet washed. Because you'd sit on the floor. There wasn't like there was nice IKEA garden furniture. You sat on the floor to eat your dinner. It was unhygienic to eat your dinner until you'd had your feet washed. And Jesus is sat around with his disciples. They've been on a journey and their feet aren't washed. Clearly, there is no Gentile slave in the building. If there were a Gentile slave in the building, their feet would be washed, but there clearly isn't. And they're all looking at each other. They're wondering, what do we do? Because the food's going cold and the food looks nice, but we can't eat it because we've had our feet washed. And it wouldn't even enter the disciples' heads to wash each other's feet. That would be peer-to-peer. You wouldn't do that. You need a Gentile slave. It is below the disciples to wash each other's feet. And then in one moment, the creator of the world, who threw the stars into space, goes from being just the creator of the world to being the servant of the world. As he takes a bucket and he takes a towel and he washes his disciples' feet. And the disciples would have been blown away by this. This was the biggest challenge they could have come across. Because in one moment, Jesus transforms the value system of life. From going after status, opportunity and greatness. Replacing that with love, mercy and service. What a moment. He, he, he turns the, the, the value structure of society on its head as he says it's not about how important you are and it's not about how good you look. It's about serving the least. And I just wonder sometimes in our own lives how much our value system is that of the world and how much it is the value system of Jesus. Because being a dangerous follower of Jesus is about loving the least and the lost. It's about caring for those no one would care for. It's about doing things that others consider below themselves. Why? Because you love people. Now, I remember when I uh, went to the Sudan and I saw all kinds of people and, and lots of people were starving to death. But I saw a culture in which people would serve the least. You know, you'd meet people that would go and work with, with lepers and work with people who are about to die to give them some integrity and dignity, but also to bring Jesus in a time when, when no one else would have done it. And I think too many of us are after being Christian celebrities and not after being servants of the risen Jesus. You know, the people at the front of heaven will not be the people we've heard of or the people's CDs we've bought or the books we've written or the sermons we heard. It'll be people that got on with the value system of God and serving and loving people. Are our values about what we can get? Is it about status, opportunity and being seen? Or is it about mercy and love, reaching out to the least and the lost? And finally, one of the bits I absolutely love about what Jesus passed on to his youth group on the final slide is he passes out the importance of empowering others. On there there's a picture of Jesus in Lego by Lazarus' tomb. And Jesus is saying, take away the stone. And the person nearby him is thinking to themselves, couldn't he do that? And do you know what? He could do that. But what I love about Jesus, Jesus stands outside Lazarus' tomb. Now, I've been to Lazarus' tomb. It, it puts in a whole new perspective. You realize why Jesus says Lazarus come out when you go to Lazarus' tomb. Because Lazarus' tomb was a communal tomb. There were 15 beds for dead people in there. If Jesus is so powerful, if he just said come out, not just Lazarus, all 15 would have walked out at once in a scooby-doo moment. 15 corpses would have come back to life. That's how powerful Jesus is. And it's lucky his name was Lazarus and not John. Like a common name like John, there might have been two or three of them. Imagine if two of them had come out at once. He said, no, not you, sunshine. You go back to sleep. You know, it's an incredible moment of power. Jesus is so powerful. He can do that. And yet, what does he say before he raises a dead man to life? 
would accompany you mind moving a stone. It's an amazing moment. He's a God of empowerment. He wants us to be involved. And, and we mustn't, as we become leaders and as we get older, we mustn't stop letting other people be empowered and involved because by doing you become part of it. And often it would be easier to do everything ourselves, but we've got to empower others. You know, the other great moment from empowerment is feeding of the 5,000. What happens in that story is Jesus crosses either over the lake or around it on Lake Galilee to a place called Tabga. Now, Lake Galilee, it's more like the sea than it is a pond. I went from one side of it to the other in a boat with an engine. It took an hour and a quarter. It would take hours to row across or walk around. Twelve to 15,000 people, you say, what about feeding of 5,000? Well, they didn't count the women and children, so you add them to the number. It's twelve to 15,000 people. They travel over or around the lake to end up at a place called Tabga, which is um, a natural amphitheater in the ground. You can be heard a kilometre away as clearly as you can a metre away. When you made the world, you don't need microphones. You just need to remember where you left the natural amphitheaters on the ground. And Jesus is there and the 12 to 15,000 gather and they're hungry. Their ancient world leucozade and carbohydrates have run out and they're hungry as they sit down and their tummies all start to rumble and the ground shakes. Bumpty bump, bumpty bump, bumpty bump. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, any of you got lunch, fellas? What a moment of empowerment. Have any of you got lunch? There's 12 to 15,000 people. And 11 of the disciples do nothing. But Andrew, Simon Peter's brother in John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, as good as says, I've got a little boy's pat lunch here. I don't know what you can do with it, but you're Jesus. So have a go. Now, just to clarify, that pat lunch was dreadful. But there's two facts we know it was dreadful. Firstly, it was made from barley loaves. That's the cheapest form of bread. That is Aldi value bread. Secondly, there's a couple of sardines in there. Sardines in the heat, it's 40 degrees in Israel. Sardines in the heat don't go well. So you've got hot, smelly fish and cheap Aldi value bread being offered to Jesus. Now, the other reason I know it's really bad lunch is because I work with young people like you guys. And a young lad's absolutely starving, having travelled around the lake. And he's looked at it and thought, I don't fancy it, give it to Jesus. That's how bad it was. And then Jesus takes it and he feeds the whole field. No one complains about quality. And any of you from Christian homes use the Bible against your parents because they use it against you. I used to say to my mum, why should I finish off my plate of dinner when Jesus doesn't make them finish off the basketfuls? That's just biblical fact. But Jesus says, has anyone got lunch? A little boy's pat lunch that a little boy rejects gets brought to Jesus. What does Jesus do with a little boy's pat lunch? He feeds the lot of them. What could he do with your little what could he do with that, that thing you've got in your pocket you've never bothered using? What could he do with what you've always thought is worth nothing? He's a God of empowerment. He's a God who raises people to life and just before says, would you mind moving the stone? He's a God who feeds a field out of virtually nothing and just before says, anyone got any lunch? He's interested in what we have and that's bringing it to him. And he wants to use it and multiply it and make a difference with it. I love the example of Jesus in his youth group. I absolutely love that he took a bunch of 15 to 22-year-olds and started the greatest revolution the world has ever known. I absolutely love it that he used all types of people. I love it there were no outsiders. I love it that he taught them to reach out. I love it he shared the right values. He empowered them. Those are just five. In that book I mentioned earlier, there's 12 different things Jesus passed on to his youth group. Go and get your free one. All good, all brilliant. But you know what? I love it that he cared enough in young people to say, together, let's change the world. And I just believe that's all Jesus wants to say to you today. Is don't be a consumer of me. Don't be someone who comes to me to be blessed again. 
be someone who comes with me and says, let's go out on the water together, not the safety of the boat, and together, let's have a go at changing the world. Young people are dangerous, you know. And you lot could change the world. But you and Jesus together. Just to finish, I am... Um, I took, take my little son to football training because, you know, the pension provision at Youth for Christ isn't very good, so the best chance is my son becoming a footballer. And so I take him, he's three, and he goes to football. And he's actually quite good. But it's interesting, he, he won't do it, he has to do his exercise where he goes through three cones and then scores into an empty goal. Oh, he's only three, so fair play. He won't do it unless he holds my hand. So this little boy puts his hand up, and I hold his hand, and then he does it. And I keep trying to explain to him that when he plays for England, I won't be allowed to do this anymore. But the minute I let go of his hand, he won't do it. And God spoke to me profoundly at his football training one week. When I felt the Lord say to me, Gavin, why don't you do this more often with me? Because I think so often for us, what we do is we go on and we just get out there and we do our own thing. And we forget that God is there. Waiting to say, let's do this together. And you know, holding on to Jesus is not a position of weakness, it's a position of strength. And in a sense, he didn't stop wanting to run youth groups when he went back to heaven. He wants to share life with you now. And together, you might just change the world.